Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What was discovered in an ancient burial mound in West Virginia in 1930? Was there pressure from scientists not to publish the most controversial data? Where are the artifacts today? Hello and welcome to the 641st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and my dad, Paul is uh, investigating a case in Pennsylvania today with our colleague Shane Searway, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago. So this afternoon, we welcome back a recent guest to continue our discussion of the evidence for some very large people in ancient North America. As always, we welcome your phone calls. The numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401-766-1240 locally. So Jason Jarrell is an investigative historian who has studied prehistoric civilizations, anomalies, biblical and extra-biblical texts and mythology for 18 years. For the last seven years, he and his wife Sarah have investigated archaic and woodland period cultures in the northeastern United States and the Ohio River Valley. Their work has included a review of hundreds of archaeological papers and books from Europe, the ancient East, in North America, as well as revisiting several lost or forgotten archaeological sites in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. Their articles have appeared in the Ancient American, Alternative Perceptions magazine, as well as on the Ancient Origins and Road to Ruins websites. Uh, They appear in the Road to Ruins Alternative History documentary series as well. So Jason Jarrell, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me. Now, do you have a website that you'd like to tell the folks about? Sure. Our website is called Allegheny Mounds, and um, you can check it out and find several interviews, articles, and a blog on the website, and uh, we'll be continually updating it over the next couple months. Okie doke. So, for those who haven't listened to our previous show uh, with yourself and my father, uh, would you be able to tell the people uh, Professor Ernest Sutton, or what Professor Ernest Sutton uh, discovered in the Doddridge County, West Virginia area in 1929 and 1930? Well, first of all, a big part of our research is to investigate the numerous accounts of gigantic skeletons that appeared in the press in the 1800s and 1900s from the burial mounds in the Ohio River Valley. And I'm sure most people that are listening to the show are aware that there are probably close to 1,500 press reports of very large skeletons found in these ancient tombs from the time period. And a part of our research is to investigate these claims and to see if they can be substantiated. And many times they can be. For example, on May 31st, 
and we found his actual archaeological report from one of these mounds, and he says that five feet deep into this mound, he discovered a skeleton, the bones of which are, and this is a quote, the largest I have ever removed from a mound. The bones were massive, with marked muscular attachments, and wonderfully developed. So we decided to apply this formula, this method, to research some of the accounts right here in our backyard in West Virginia. And what occurred was in the summer of 1930, a number of newspaper articles appeared describing discovery of a race of gigantic beings from two burial mounds in Dodgers County, West Virginia. And according to these press reports, they were found by an individual named Ernest Sutton, who was a professor at Salem University. And all the press accounts were dated to June 15th. Now, the details were that in excavating two burial mounds, Sutton found skeletons ranging from 7 foot 6 to 9 feet tall. And so we began a ground investigation in Doddridge County, and we spoke with numerous people and reviewed all manner of historical material and manuscripts. And what we found was that even in locally published books and pamphlets, there was reference to these large beings in Sutton's own words. And unanimously, they all dated to the summer of 1930. So it appears that Sutton himself may have held some type of conference or made some type of presentation in June of 1930 to discuss discoveries that he made in these mounds. So why didn't Sutton re- write a report on these findings almost 20 years later in uh, on ni- 1959? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Sutton himself did not publish a written report on his discoveries in the mound at Doddridge uh, until, as you said, until far later than the actual excavations. The excavations were done in 1929, and his actual paper on the excavations didn't appear until 1958 in the West Virginia Archaeologist. And in his actual excavation report, he does not give any measurements for the burials in the mound. But he does mention that a burial which was of some significant importance, according to his own words, was actually stolen from the site by an individual named Paige Lockhart. He says Mr. Lockhart collected the bones and took them home with him. Well, that's a highly unusual practice in 1929 because, by and large, when these types of tombs were excavated, uh, unless they were excavated by the Smithsonian, usually people didn't have an interest in packing up the bones and taking them home, unless there may have been something special about the bones. And 
in researching Sutton's work, what we found was that he actually excavated a number of burial mounds in the Ohio River Valley. And interestingly enough, one of the excavations which he performed, excuse me, one of the excavations that he performed was at the Johnson-Thompson Mound in Ohio. And he excavated the Johnson-Thompson Mound between September of 1962 and October of 1963. Now, for some reason, the report for the Johnson-Thompson Mound did not appear until 1966 in the Ohio Archaeologist. And what we found was that there were several issues which the Ohio Historical Society had with Sutton's report for the Johnson-Thompson Mound. And they're actually outlined in a piece of correspondence between Sutton and Martha Potter of the Ohio Historical Society dated March 21, 1966. Now, in this letter, Sutton is addressing several issues which the Ohio Historical Society had with his report of the Johnson-Thompson Mound. And this is a quote from that letter. I note some question by you and Dr. Bobby regarding my measurement of burials and what formula I use. By examination and checking, I find that the length of the femur bone is approximately one-third of the total length. And he goes on to assure Mrs. Potter that the Johnson-Thompson Mound report has been revised in conformity with instructions and is now returned. Now, this letter demonstrates several, several things that were going on in archaeology at the time. For one thing, it demonstrates that the larger organizations like the Ohio Historical Society were asking excavators and archaeologists to alter their reports. But second of all, it reveals what Sutton's measurement of skeletal material was. And Sutton's formula would actually underestimate the height of skeletons because the femur length is actually closer to one-fourth of the size of the skeleton. Uh, hold on one second. Could you explain this formula? Uh, or the formula is used to measure skeletons, just, just for... Just for uh, um, well, that's correct. Yeah. Sutton felt that the length of a femur bone was approximately one-third of the total length of the skeleton. Mm-hmm. But today, as it's understood, the length of the femur bone is closer to around one-fourth. So what that means is that... In 1930, when Sutton addressed the press and announced the discovery of a skeleton seven foot six and another skeleton at nine feet tall, if he was using this formula that he's describing in the 1960s, he was underestimating the height of those skeletons. Ah, uh, so okay. Been, so I, see, I see what you're saying. Larger. And of course, the Mound report in question with the Ohio Historical Society for the Johnson Thompson Mound was delayed for three years because of changes that the Ohio Historical Society wanted Sutton to make to that report. 
So we investigated that mound site, the Johnson Thompson mound site, and what we found was that the report is embellished with certain details for certain burials. For example, in most of the burials in that mound, Sutton gives exact measurements. However, there are two burials which he says are very well preserved, which he offers no measurements for. So if we review this in light of his letter to the Ohio Historical Society, in which he's addressing their issues with this mound report, it's possible that Sutton had felt pressure to remove the size of several skeletons from that report because, as we've already covered, one of the issues the Ohio Historical Society had was with the size of the skeletons in the report. So what that means for the Doddridge County Mound is that if Sutton excavated these mounds in 1929, he may have been unaware of a stigma against publishing the heights of very large skeletons, and that's why there are no measurements given in the published report in 1958. Ah, that makes sense. But it appears as if we have a caller, and do we? We do. Well, <laughs> it's Marcia, um, the artist, so here I am. Hi, Marcia. Welcome to Behind the Paranormal. So I understand uh, that you... Me. Oh, you are most welcome. So I understand that you are doing um, I want to artist renderings of, of these, these giants, but it is more than just artist renderings, like sort of doing sketches. Now, could you explain your method by which you are doing these renderings? Yeah, um, most definitely. Um, actually, why don't I just give you, a, if I could first give you a little background as to how this became of interest, because sure. um, that kind of lends itself initially. Um, when I uh, moved to Florida about 15 years ago, I, um, I became very interested in the ancient, quote-unquote, Florida, uh, pre-Spanish. Um, there's a lot of uh, significant mound structures here in Florida, and I started to create a story, kind of a fanciful story slash hopeful animation. And through that and the development of that, these little side trails emerged. And one of them was um, creating, uh, kind of reconstructing the elongated skulls that you see all over the world and uh, specifically down in the Paracas culture of Peru. And, um, and then also kind of a side trail that led towards um, our mound builder's here in North America, and that led to the giant. So that was how it kind of developed. And this has just been a few years for me, really understanding it and letting it unfold and intuitively um, creating. And then also through Jason and Sarah's data um, with what they've researched, coming up with these reconstructions. So I am taking uh, a 3D software that I use, so I'm working in the computer, and I'm creating sculptures so you can see them um, full around, you know, like 180, and um, taking the data from Jason and other alternative researchers and reconstructing the best I can um, what these skulls might have looked like physically. I'm not a forensic artist, uh, scientist, but I do an understand anatomy through just being a traditional artist. Um, with the fine arts, and um, so this is what I'm coming up with. And I 
I seem to be the only one out there that is doing this, and um, I just feel like it's rather a responsibility to see some of these skulls take shape. So that's a little bit of what I'm doing. So, Jason, does this sort of uh, animation or um, reconstruction help in your research at all? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, certainly. The, no, the people in question that were buried in the mound excavated by Ernest Sutton, these people were part of the Adena culture of the Ohio River Valley. And the Adena had a very unique anthropology. They are one of the only mound-building cultures which, on record, have been demonstrated to have had gigantic human skeletons. And their anthropology was distinctly different from any other prehistoric people in North America. And when we were doing our initial research, we were shocked that no one had ever attempted to actually accurately recreate a living Adena giant because the giants for the Adena culture were documented, photographed, and put on record by mainstream archaeologists in the 20th century, and we have numerous photographs of their crania, and Marcia's recreation of the Adena giant, they are based on actual photographs. These are not just theoretical interpretations, and they're not fantastic. She actually bases her recreations on people who actually live off of actual crania and actual skeletal measurements. No, that's that's definitely fascinating. So I'm going to jump jump ahead a little bit and say, what is the ultimate goal of all of this research, all of the reconstructions? Marcia, I'll let you answer that one first. Well, for me, you know, I think that um, uh, just really finding out about all of this research and um, starting to apply it uh, with the the skill set that I have. I think that people deserve to have a visual of um, all of these skulls that are being found, all of these, uh, all of the information that Jason and Sarah have researched, and others out there. Um, people need this visual. People, it's important to have a visual. So that is my part. Um, and then I'm getting more and more information daily from researchers such as Jason, and that helps me to continue the process. It helps me to form. Um, more of an accuracy to uh, the re- recreations, and um, people deserve this. They deserve visuals. They can relate to visuals. We need that. We need to see it. And now you, Jason? Well, for us, this is a part of a greater prehistoric reality. The, the North American giants are simply one aspect of a greater mystery that's revealed itself to us over the years. And we believe that the entire prehistory of North America is dramatically misunderstood. And one reason for that is the denial of the tall ones. But coupled with that is is an ignorance, a general ignorance of how sophisticated and how advanced the civilizations here actually were thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, for example, we now know that 
in the south at sites like Watson Break and the Monte Sano Mound, people were practicing advanced monumental construction in North America at least between 4,000 and 3,000 B.C. We know that they were building shell middens, which may have actually been created to mimic certain constellations. As early as 4,500 B.C., we know that they had advanced metallurgy. For example, the people in North America were fabricating very advanced spear points with very elaborate tangs for hafting as early as 5,700 B.C. In almost every other part of the world, metallurgy began as the simple manufacture of trinkets like beads and pendants. In fact, the earliest artifact from the Shanidar Cave in Iraq is a pendant. In places like France and Britain, the earliest metallurgy, again, is simple copper beads, and these are dating to 3,500 to 3,000 B.C. So there was clearly some type of advanced culture in North America, and the reason that we don't know about it is because at the turn of the last century, when the Smithsonian Institution essentially took over North American archaeology, they had a doctrine that everything here had to be primitive. You weren't allowed to interpret if you worked for the Smithsonian. You were not allowed to interpret the data to suggest an advanced civilization. And effectively, that set archaeology back in America by a century. So our goal is really to restore a greater prehistoric reality, and we want to give people an image of the actual individuals who lived here. Those are both very noble goals. So before we go to our break, I'm going to start us off with a question. We're going to take a break and continue it. So you mentioned the Smithsonian Institute, uh, especially their Department of Anthropology. Was there really a cover-up by them, and if so, why? Well, the Smithsonian Institute actually did not begin to deny the discovery of gigantic skeletons until after the turn of the century. The Smithsonian field agents actually recorded the discovery of many gigantic skeletons in their field reports, and you can actually reference these on archive.org. They were finding skeletons seven and eight feet tall all over North America in the mounds of not only the Adena, but also later Mississippian cultures in North Carolina and Georgia. It wasn't until Ailey Sardlitschka took over the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian that the policy of denial was instituted. And Herdlitschka was a member of the American Eugenics Society. The American Eugenics Society was essentially waging war with the First Nations people. They had sterilized over 3,000 First Nations women, and in their writings, it's clear that they considered North Americans to be an inferior stock. So there were certainly personal motives and political motives for the obfuscation of evidence of a superior physical life form that had existed in North America's past. 
No, that makes that makes sense. But I think right now we're gonna take our break, and we will be back to behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, or with just Ben Eno, in just a few seconds. See you then. Hi, this is Romeo Berthi. I'm inviting you to join me every Saturday morning from 6 to 9 for the Saturday Show. This all-request program includes music, news, sports, weather, and all sorts of community announcements. And what a great way to start your weekend. Join me this Saturday morning. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, or just Ben, and uh, we have adopted a number of charities on our show, but we will talk about those towards the end of the show, and we have a fascinating guest with us today, or two guests, I should say, Jason Jarrell, as well as Marcia. Marcia, what is your last name? I actually never got it. Oh, it's Moore. Marcia Moore. There we go. Uh I don't know how that never got on my script or anything, but hey, you never know. Alrighty, so let us get back to our fascinating discussion about giants. So I'm going to start off this half of the hour with this. So there is plenty of skepticism about Sutton's discoveries, and in fact, the West Virginia Division of Culture and History suggests that it was all a hoax, or at least a mistake. And the Smithsonian Institute suggests that even the mounds themselves are relatively recent. So what say you? Well, first of all, the... West Virginia Culture and History newspaper article that mentions a hoax is actually talking about uh, a completely different site. It's talking about the Grave Creek Mound in Marshall County, West Virginia. And that's actually an interesting story in and of itself. Would you um, like to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yes. The, the individual in question that you're mentioning from the article, his last name is Price. And it mentions that he debunked a hoax. Well, the hoax that it's describing is the Grave Creek Tablet. Now, the Grave Creek Tablet was discovered in the Grave Creek Mound at Marshall County, West Virginia, in 1838. And it's a small sandstone tablet with engravings. And the artifact has since disappeared, but there are numerous photographs and there are actually replicas of it in circulation. And the reason this tablet is so controversial is that the engraved characters appear to come from five different forms of Iberian. And Iberian is an ancient proto-Celtic alphabet from around the Mediterranean region. And so the discovery of this tablet has always been a real problem. And I think every couple of years, the archaeologists in West Virginia come out with a different reason why it's a fraud. And that's interesting for an artifact that was discovered as long ago as 1838. But in relation to that, I'd like to mention that the Smithsonian originally employed an individual named Wills de Haas to oversee their mound excavations in the 1880s. And in 1881, Wills de Haas was mysteriously fired by the Smithsonian, by the Bureau of Ethnology, while he was still doing field work. And what we learned was that de Haas had actually submitted a manuscript for his own book on the mound builders to the Smithsonian, which was never published and was locked in the Smithsonian vault. Now, we've managed to get a hold of this manuscript, 
And it turns out that De Haas considered this tablet to be authentic, which may be one reason why it was fired while still doing field work. But maybe more importantly than that, in the manuscript, he confirms that the skeletal remains from the Grave Creek Mound where the tablet was found were gigantic, similar to the ones found in the Doddridge Mounds by Sutton. So why all the skepticism? I know you sort of mentioned that there was that there was definitely a um, definitely like some political motivations there, but even today there there seems to be that same sort of uh, what's the word stigma with all these findings that are coming up. And there's all sorts of other researchers out there besides yourself that are trying to present this evidence. And why is it not being heard? Well, first of all, out of all the accounts of gigantic skeletons that are routinely reprinted every few years, only a portion of them are authentic. There's a number of these accounts which are pure sensationalism, and in my opinion, they are fabrications. The goal of our research is to discover where the truth is, which is one reason at the beginning of the show I confirmed one of the accounts from 1897 in Ohio. I think that the skepticism, and skepticism is healthy, by the way, I think that the skepticism largely stems from the fact that so many of the accounts are so sensational. And today, as researchers, our goal needs to be to discover what we can verify. And it's really surprising, but over the course of our research, we found that an extraordinary number of these accounts can actually be verified through the actual archaeological reports for the sites that they're describing. So who is Dr. Gregory Little? And he seems to agree with you. Why? I'm sorry, what was that he said? Uh, who is Dr. Gregory, Gregory Little? And he seems to agree with you. Why? Well, Greg Little, he's another researcher in the field, and he's published an excellent book on the subject called Path of Souls. And some of the research that Greg has done has been geared more towards looking at some of the explanations for these large skeletons. Uh, for example, you commonly hear about how tall people are stillborn today, where you hear about people with various diseases, which can cause them to grow very tall. And Greg has proven statistically that the sheer number of gigantic skeletons reaching seven, eight, some of them even nine feet tall, that have been found in the Ohio River Valley mounds would make it impossible for any of these other explanations to account for the phenomenon. And that's, that's very true because by the conventional dating, the Adena culture only existed for seven or eight hundred years. And just going by the records of the Smithsonian and the press and the local histories, there are many multiple hundreds of very tall, powerfully built individuals found in their burials. That's interesting. Actually, um, I, I sort of was remind. I guess you sort of reminded me of that. That the Udina culture was very short-lived uh, compared to some of the other. Um, I want to say Mesozoic, but some of the archaic cultures that are out there. But 
that sort of leads me to another question. Um, does it seem as if the culture, these cultures lasted for, well, not very long, but they seem to have shorter lives than most other cultures. Would you agree? Well, actually, that's, as I said before, I'm, I'm speaking of the conventional dating. And in our book, we're going to be breaking the prehistory of America down into several new phases that we had to invent in order to explain prehistory in a different way. And it's our opinion that what we call the Adena culture is actually just one phase of a much older culture, which goes back 1,500 years earlier than the conventional dating for Adena. For example, we've obtained some information on some sites in Wisconsin associated with copper artifacts and the old copper industry from the Great Lakes where the people buried at these sites had among them Adena-like people. So what we're probably looking at is a very old race who throughout the centuries and the millennia were responsible for numerous cultures. Huh, okay. Well, on that note, what are some of your latest findings? Well, right now we're working on putting together the the chapters for our book that's supposed to be out by the end of the summer. And probably the most interesting discovery that we're writing about, to me personally, is the history of social sophistication in North America. In the Western world, archaeologists are sort of trained to look for evidence of urbanism and settlement packing before they will identify prehistoric civilization. And that's true for the big two. The big two civilizations, the first civilizations supposedly on Earth, the Uruk and the Danubian civilizations, these are largely identified by archaeologists because of the practice of urbanism which that means the building of large towns and the aggregate of large numbers of people, the construction of cities. And we've come to believe that a comparable civilization did exist in North America sometime between 6,000 and 3,000 B.C. And this civilization is invisible to Western archaeologists because they had a way of life which did not involve the construction of large cities or packing people into small groups. Because the metallurgy and monumental construction is certainly on par and and in some instances even more advanced than what we see throughout the rest of the world at the same time period. And the research that's coming out of the South suggests that this civilization was motivated and sustained and held together by cosmology. So there weren't people with political power, necessarily. There weren't people who were controlling exchange yet, because that doesn't occur until around 2000 B.C. For whatever the reason, the people participating in this ancient culture were driven by cosmological drive. Okay. 
So uh, we have a question, actually, which came from my dad, who is currently on the road in Pennsylvania, but he couldn't stay on the line. So our benevolent producer shall attempt to explain his question. Benevolent producer, I like that. All right, um, Paul had a question relating to gigantism. Uh, with people being taller than seven, taller than seven feet, uh, they tend to have heart problems, and just with the general strain on their bodies from being that large. Uh, could this have a possible medical implication on why, like, these civilizations possibly didn't last as long? Well, first of all, people today with gigantism, the, the, physical, the physical nature, the physical anthropology of people with gigantism today is nothing like the anthropology of the Adena giants. Uh, in the 1940s and then in 1963, William S. Webb, Charles Snow, and Don Dragu outlined the, the physical anthropology of the Adena Giants in several well-read books, well-known books. And the tall ones among the Adena, they had a near-perfect musculature their bones had marked eminences for the attachment of muscles. Many of the Adena did live into old age. Several of the mound reports mentioned people that were very old. And these were essentially very large, powerfully built individuals. And I think that that really comes through with Marcia's reconstruction. Now, Marcia, would you like to make a comment on this? Well, um, absolutely. The way that I received the data from Jason, the skeletal, um, the skull, um, remember this was a reconstruction interpretation, but um, as I'm reconstructing and noticing the, the skull and the way that it's shaped, and it's just there's a, a physique that is, it looks very powerful, it looks very um, uh, robust, and um, I don't believe it was, uh, this is just my own opinion, you know, because I'm interpreting these. But I'm also uh, noticing in North America, let's say if we combine our large uh, Native American people, where there's the statue of, of some of these people are, it's very tall, they're very tall. If you go up in the Dakotas and, and the Osage and such, you see very uh, tall people. And so I'm bringing in characteristics that might have combined at some point. And so I'm taking the skull reference, and I'm taking that physical feature, and I'm combining it. And those are very robust individuals, tall but very robust. So that is where I'm coming up with my interpretation. Um, I might add, since um, Jason is the one that's really giving you the, the hard information here, um, I might bow out here at some point um, because really you need to just see the visuals. I'm working hand in hand with Jason and Sarah. We're, we're involved with many projects together right now. Sure. Um, and if you want to go look at my website, which is Marcia, M-A-R-C-I-A, initial K, more, M-O-O-R-E dot com, you will see some of the earlier work that we are showing right now of these reconstructions. Now, with Jason and Sarah's book, um, there's definitely going to be a lot of more um, reconstructions. Um, we're going to have Hopewell. We're going to have Adina Females. We're going to have 
um, other elements of North America and even beyond international Europe, other giant peoples. We're going to have those reconstructed inside of his book. So I would definitely go to my website, see some of the reconstructions that have already been out there in publication uh, to get a feel of what we're doing. And also, um, myself, Jason, and Sarah, and several others are going to be at the Serpent Mound event, the Solstice event, which is the 17th through the 20th. So if there's anybody, any of your listeners in that area, that territory, uh, Jason is going to be speaking, and I will be uh, speaking shortly and giving you more visuals. I'm the visual person, so to ask me a lot of questions is very difficult because I'm interpreting from data that I'm receiving. So we have to have a visual um, to go along with this information. It just, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's going to give you the foundation and it's going to slowly build up the architecture of what happened during this time period. So I think it's very important. I seem to believe that it is definitely a responsibility that I have utilizing my skill set as an artist. And I believe others are stepping up to the plate more and more um, and with with just their understanding of how, wow, you know what, history, there's a lot going on that we were never told. So more and more people are coming to the forefront just to help me or just to help Jason and others out there that are really involved in this. And it's uh, it's wonderful. It's It really is. And I'm very excited about all of this. Um, and I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to exit so you can continue well, to before, talk Well, before you go, I guess while we're on the subject, uh, Jason, okay. would, would you like to uh, explain what, what you got going on, you and Sarah? I know you have a book coming out uh, this year. So you, you have that going on. What other projects you have going on? You also, uh, I also heard Marcia mention the uh, Serpent Mound uh, around the Solstice event. If you guys want to talk about that, feel free. Give some websites, give some books, because we're coming towards the end of our time. Well, sure. Well, uh like Marcia said, we'll be doing a presentation on the 18th of June at the Solstice event at the Serpent Mound, and we're going to have some of her reconstructions to show everybody, and we're actually going to have some images of these beings as they were photographed in the tombs. We're going to have the skeletal material, the photographs of the skeletal material that was used in the recreation of the Adena so that people can see that. And um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Marcia is going to be illustrating our book, like she said, and this book is going to cover about 7,000 years of history. And everyone's working very hard on it, and we're all very excited. So when is your book coming out? We're trying to finish it by the end of the summer. It's massive. Um, it's going to be, it's going to read like a large research paper because we want people who maybe even don't agree with our theories to be able to use this book for their own research. And, um, yeah, we're aiming for the end of the summer. Oh, well, fair enough. All right, well, thank you for being with us, Marcia. It was a pleasure. And you offered a lot of great information along with the, along with Jason here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, you know, I can give you, a little bit of information, but honestly, you have to just go to the website and see the visual. You and, want to give that web- um, website for us one more time? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Marcia, M-A-R-C-I-A. I use my initial, middle initial, K, and then more, M-O-O-R-E dot com. And All right, there thank you, you will see a lot of reconstructions, interpretations of what Jason and Sarah and I are working on, definitely. All right, well, thank you for being with us.
Thank you, guys. Jason, I'll talk to you on Wednesday. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Jason. So now we have we have come down to it. It is about that time for me to ask more questions to you. So, how long ago are we talking for these giant beings? I know you sort of gave some ballpark estimations, but nothing really too solid on how long ago these cultures existed. And they seem to be all over the place, but can you give like a rough estimate? Oh, I don't mind that at all, actually. Uh, now, remember that this is this is kind of a hot button issue because basically. <clears throat> what happens in North America is, in archaeology, archaeology is ran by trends in North America, and since about 1971, the trend regarding the Adena culture has been to deconstruct rather than to more fully understand the culture. But approaching that as an outsider, we actually include a lot of rejected radiocarbon dating and different anthropological papers that people don't refer to very often in our research. So it's my suggestion that the earliest manifestation of cultural features associated with these beings in North America is probably around 2,500 B.C., and this can be seen in, at the archaeological sites of the Temple and Titterington and Old Copper cultures. And over time, that sort of evolves into the better-known Adena culture. And even the mainstream archaeologists know that the Adena culture was sort of a legacy of these late archaic groups that I'm talking about now. I suppose the difference um, is that we're actually tracking their anthropology back to the earlier time period. And it looks as if around 2500 B.C. in North America, individuals with the Adena anthropology appeared and began marrying their females out in a wider area. And wherever we find the females, we also find similar cultural features such as mound construction, copper artifacts, the use of certain burial rituals, until eventually, in around 900 B.C., we begin to see the full manifestation of the Adena culture in the Ohio River Valley. Now, this is going to be my final question because we're burning up this hour. Is the trend in archaeology changing, or will it ever change? Well, there are some really incredible people working in archaeology today. That are, that are doing amazing work that really surprises me. One of those people is William Romain. William Romain's going to be speaking at the Serpent Mountain event also, and he's just published a book on the earthworks in the Ohio River Valley that I just can't recommend enough. Um, so I believe that over time, things will change. It's not going to change anytime very soon, because, unfortunately, as this type of research has grown in popularity and increased in frequency, there are a number of people in the establishment who now consider it their full-time job to constantly try to debunk people like myself or other people like Ross Hamilton. So, over time, it will change. 
eventually the paradigm of prehistory in North America will crack and begin to crumble, whether the establishment likes it or not. The only question is, at that point, uh, does academia choose to evolve? Hmm. That is a very good question. So, your websites again, books, anything you're working on, any upcoming events, and now is your, your time to shine. Yeah, the website is Allegheny Mound. You can follow me and Sarah also, Sarah Farmer, my co-writer and my wife. You can follow us both on Facebook. And uh, we have an article coming out at the next issue of Ancient American Magazine. We're working on some things for Ancient Origins. And uh, we're going to try to have the book done by the end of the summer. All right, when you get that book done, give us a shout and we'll have you back on. You can talk about the book. Great. All right, Jason, thank you for being with us this afternoon, and it was great conversation as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. You are most welcome. Have a good one. Alrighty, so on to a plethora of announcements. Our next public appearance will be at the Connecticut Gathering of the Paranormal in Windsor Locks on Saturday and Sunday, July 23rd and 24th. And we will speak on Saturday, then on Sunday, and we will host the weekly edition of the show with a panel of all the speakers uh, before a live audience. And also speaking will be our friend uh, William J. Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House, and now uh, The Haunted House Diaries. And this event will benefit the Queen of Hearts Thoroughbred, Thoroughbred Retirement Farm in uh, Maine, which we were told it was to benefit the homeless, and uh, we did not know that it was homeless horses. So, well, I mean... We're giving homes for horses. So September 3rd and 4th uh, will be on the docket for the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. In October, we'll speak at the MUFON event in Philadelphia and at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts. And there is more information on that as the dates approach. And meanwhile, find out more about the show our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, one of the top websites for visits and use. Also at our site, uh, you will find over 650 free recorded shows from both O1-1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Our forthcoming book, uh, originally titled Cosmic Journey, now Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is slated for release by Schiffer Publishing in January. There will be a release party of some kind, and we will let you know about that. We had some ideas, but we're still trying to work out the kinks for that. And you can find my dad's books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, and Barnes & Noble Nook. Uh, but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, I will sign these books for you, as well as my dad, because he actually wrote them. And you will help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our websites, you will find... Direct links to several charities that my dad and I have adopted, including USA Cares, Canadian, Veter- Canadian Veterans Advocacy, also Youth Mentoring Connections in Los Angeles, doing amazing things for at-risk youth using ancient knowledge. That's youthmentoring.org, as well as Help for Haiti, doing a lot of good things over in Haiti. There are two books of special interest to our local listeners here in New England, and one of them is the Bell Witch Project, which contains that story, as well as a few other contributions by my dad. It's a very goofy-looking book, but he puts in a couple paragraphs, and he gets his name slapped on the cover of it. But hey, you know, there's a lot of cool things in there, including cases from New England uh, from the 17th century, uh, talking about the Spectre Leaguers of Massachusetts, and the 18th and 19th century vampire hysteria in Rhode Island and Connecticut, which most people don't know that Danvers, Connecticut, actually had it a lot worse than Salem, Massachusetts. A lot of people don't know that. 
and UFO repeaters with an entire chapter on our friend uh, Joe Ferrier, who had a talk show here on ON for over 50 years. I remember we used to come in uh, every morning, every, every Monday night, and he would just be finishing up open lines, and we would come in and we'd sort of um, just talk for a little while before the show started. He asked us, "Oh, who do you got? Who do you got on?" He's like, "Oh, I know that guy. I know that guy." <laughs> he knew pretty much everybody that was like coming on our show that talked about UFOs. It was. And we actually we had him do one show with us once, just once. And uh, after that, he was like, "All right, well, I'm done." He uh, he he decided a very long time ago to sort of give up give up the chase when a lot of weird things started happening to him. So he he was a good guy, and he is missed every single day. So most recently, my dad contributed to the newest book by Tim Beckley and uh, Sean Castile, a tome with the eye-grabbing title of Timothy Green Beckley's Spooky Treasure Troves. That's UFOs, Ghosts, Cursed Pieces of Eight, and the Paranormal. And he only contributed a few paragraphs on uh, why things can be haunted and why extraterrestrials might conceivably be interested in gold. Uh, But he got his name on the cover anyway. It seems to be sort of the, the thing with all of these Tim Beckley books. And all three of these books are available on Amazon.com or use the links at our online bookstore that is BehindTheParanormal.com. So it seems as if we have about uh, two minutes left. And, you know, that might give us a little bit of time to do maybe a Facebook message or two. And we have some time, just ever so slightly. Because we never get time to answer any of these emails, I might go through this and pick something out that is kind of short. And this is from Larry in North Smithfield, and he writes, I find your shows about animals and the paranormal truly fascinating, especially your stories about your cats and Paul's experience with ghostly deer. So my question is about animals. If they are so good at telling the presence of ghosts, can animals also tell the presence of UFOs or aliens? And how can they be so sensitive in either case? That's actually a really interesting question. Because I have heard many things, and also you see depicted in movies, like if you watch Signs or whatever, dogs freaking out about aliens that are, that are around. I think it has something to do with all paranormal phenomena in and of itself because think of like dog whistles, right? Dog whistles we can't hear because it's outside of our realm of hearing because we only hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. They hear something that's outside of us. Just because their bodies are constructed differently doesn't mean they can't experience other things. So like uh, like electric fences, why don't we – if we put on like a dog collar or something, why aren't we like affected by electric fences? Because we have a different anatomy. So my guess would be, because I'm not a veterinarian, that perhaps their different anatomy would have something to do with that. But you know, we could always go over this in more detail when we actually have a little bit more time. But I figured I might as well touch upon it and get back to it in our next open line show. So next Sunday, May 29th, we'll welcome back UFO researcher and broadcaster uh, Tina Marie Cowett for a discussion of what she believes is a serious disconnect between the UFO experts and the people who have actually experienced UFOs and abductions. And we leave you this afternoon with a rather cute quote from Dr. Seuss. I like nonsense. It wakes up the brain cells. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on a great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. We actually time and touch upon it. Might as well get back.